So hallelujah means an utterance of praise or joy towards God. Hallelujah, grace like rain. Now, um, I'm, I'm not trying to bring a spotlight into myself, but I've been working out a lot. And uh, I've been jumping around in my basement working out, which is a little weird, right? Because we're, I'm too cheap to join a gym, so I have to use my basement. I'm sweating a lot in my basement, and it's gross because it kind of smells a little bit like dog and sweat. So you get that smell in your head. That's what we need for an essential oil, sweat dog. So gross. Smells like a gym in here. Yeah, we're losing weight together, guys. But anyway, every time I get done working out, every time, I go upstairs and I ask people in my family who wants a hug. It is the most disgusting thing ever. And I always offer to my beautiful wife, Adrienne, do you want a hug? And she looks at me with disgust and says, get away from me. And and I, I'm, I know this is like, holy smokes, I, I'm totally revealing. Every, I take my shirt off too, right? And so, like, it's just me and my gross, sweaty body standing in the living room saying, would you like a hug? Every time I do it, right? And, it's, and she's like, get out of here. And I, I'm, I laugh. It happens every day. If you ask her, she'll go, yeah, that happens every single day. Okay, now take that image of sweaty Jason reaching for a hug. Now, but apply a different thing to it, right? Grace like rain, right? Grace like rain. You're out, you've been outside, and it's raining, and you just get soaked. You get soaked with this rain. And if you were to go hug somebody with, with a wet body from rain, they, you would transfer that moisture to them, right? Now imagine the grace of God falls on you and you're just covered in His grace. And you, and you do the not Wyoming thing and shake your hand, but you just squeeze somebody with that grace-drenched body that you have and transfer all of it to the person you just hugged. When you sing the song, Grace Like Rain, that's what I, in pict- I mean, I'm standing back here and I get this picture of us hugging people, and I actually got the picture of myself offering to hug people after I sweat. But it's the same, you get it? You get it? When, when grace like rain falls on us, when the grace of God falls on us, why would we hold that for ourselves? Why would we keep that as our own special little wetness that we're experiencing, right? No, that's why we say hallelujah. It's his utterance. It's his verbal expression of hallelujah, grace like rain. I am covered by the grace of God, and now I'm going to reach out, and I'm going to grab somebody. I'm going to bring them close to me so they can experience the same sweetness, the same refreshness that I, and I don't know if that's a word, that I'm experiencing. That's church. That's church, where we get to hug those who come in because we've experienced the sweetness, the grace that's come from heaven, and it's transformed us, transformed our moment, transformed our hour, transformed our day, our month, our our lives, 
See, all of you who are regenerate, who put your faith in Jesus Christ, can proclaim this every day because you were dead to sins before, but now you're not. And that's a crazy thing to say to somebody. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Do you hear that already this morning? I was dead, but now I'm alive. And grace has fallen on me like rain. And let me just reach out and hug you, and you're going to feel it. Because you're wet. So now every time you hug somebody, you probably think of sweaty Jason. And I'm okay with that. I've put this beautiful picture in your head. I want us to think, now, you know what? That's disarming. And what I've learned about living in our state for five months is that's awkward. We don't hug here. Unless we're family. And in that case, we just kind of side hug a little bit. We're like, yeah, you're okay. We're huggers in our household, and we hug a lot. I had this funny moment just a little bit ago with Bob. I was walking out of my office. Bob was coming down the hallway. I did not look in my rearview mirror. I just came barging out of my office like there's nobody else in the building but myself, right? And... I came, and we were probably, what, like maybe eight inches from each other. It was almost a collision, right, a paramount collision in the hallway. And I went like this, whoa. And he said something to me, and we kind of joked, right? You know what my instinct was, Bob, was to grab you and hug you. But then I thought, whoa, Bob might punch me if I were to do that. Because that's so unnatural for us. It is so unnatural. And it's unnatural culturally here. In this state. And that's a state issue. We're independent. Don't touch me. Don't talk to me. If I need something from you, I'll tell you. But I can do it on my own. If we believe in grace like rain, our desire is to run ourselves into people and to hug people and to make them so uncomfortable with the hug but the, 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 that they feel that this thing that just happened where you transferred the the experience that you're experiencing in the Lord to them. An authentic hug transforms lives. And so, I have learned that being here. And I've, I've acquiesced to your rules a little bit. I'm not hugging everyone. There's some of you that I like can sneak in a hug. I've hugged Pam a couple times around. The, we've been like hip bump each other. I'm a hugger. We're in Luke 19. Today, we're going to finish up this journey of the, of the stories of the kingdom of God. Today is the last time that we're preaching on, oh, no, we're not. It'll come up every single week, probably. But this is the end of the series. We've been in Luke for a while. This is like the 13th week, I think, where we're in Luke 19, arguably the most famous story in all of Luke. Last week, we introduced a concept, or I introduced a concept. I mean, we, I guess it was a we because we're together. And somebody made magnets for us. If you want to put this on your fridge, there's some magnets at the back table. Anyway, it's Casper Math. Three questions. Remember, I introduced this last week. I want this to begin to permeate your soul a little bit to where, like, you begin to ask these questions all the time. What does this teach me about God? How does this help me pursue Jesus? And how can this change my life? Three questions plus one challenge. And the challenge was, who can I, 
Who can I invite to join me in this? That equals growth. Three plus one equals growth. Personal growth, numerical growth, conversion growth. Can you imagine us as a group experiencing the good things of the Lord and saying, come along on this journey with me. Join me on this ride. We're doing this thing together. So I want you to pick up a magnet, throw it on your refrigerator. You'll see it every single time. Unless you have one of those weird refrigerators that doesn't hold magnets. Anybody have one of those? That's a frustrating thing. Like put a magnet up there and it falls down. You're like, what's the point of this? Anyway, there's magnets. I want you to grab one, put it on your refrigerator. And I want you to hear this story. You'll know the story. It's about a wee little man. Luke 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He, was, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I, am defrauded, if I have defrauded anyone or anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I pray that as we look into your word, prepare ourselves for communion. Lord, that uh, it's your words that are heard this morning, not mine. Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us to understand your scripture, that you would challenge us in a deep and meaningful way. That morning, This morning that we could say, answer that question, Lord, how am I growing because of this? What does this teach me about you? How does it help me pursue your son, Jesus? Who can I invite to join me? How is this changing me? Lord, these questions I want to be part of our church family. And so, Lord, help us to, to do that together today. In his son's name, amen. So Jesus is passing through Jericho. The story is pretty, uh, pretty obvious. I mean, this happens every week when we get into these Luke stories. They're pretty obvious. Luke uses similar story structure through all of it. He's, Jesus is making his arrival at Jerusalem the forefront of his ministry now, right? The, the divine purpose in which Jesus has, has come onto the scene is coming into shape, into picture. So Jesus stops on his way to Jerusalem at Jericho. Jericho is roughly, now there's different numbers, but Jericho is roughly 15 miles or so away from Jerusalem. There's a few paths paths to get into Jerusalem from there. Maybe uh, those who are going to Jerusalem or to Israel this summer, they'll be able to stop and see this sycamore tree. The divine purpose of, of, of Jesus, really, the, the, what God has sent him, what he brought him out of heaven to do is, is at the forefront. It's, it's the picture of what's about to begin. So while moving through 
this area. He encounters crowds. His, his fame has grown. He's healed people. He's done amazing things. He's created controversy. He's challenged the leadership. He has gained a crowd of people. And so the crowd of people is following him, waiting for him to do whatever he's going to do, whether it's to teach, whether it's to heal somebody, whether, whatever it is. They're wanting to see, just like how we want to see famous people. Living in Iowa like I used to, Iowa was the epicenter of the beginning of the political season. When, I mean, right now, it's going to be crazy there with one side of the political aisle. They're going to be coming through Iowa like, like crazy. Because Iowa was the first on the scene to do a vote. And if you land in Iowa and you win in Iowa, you get this big thing called momentum. And momentum takes you to the next state and takes you to the next state. And momentum, what it does is it creates word-of-mouth buzz. And that word-of-mouth buzz makes everybody kind of listen just a little bit more. So living in Iowa was kind of fun at times because everybody came there. It didn't matter. They all stopped there. So when the state fair would happen, there would be presidential candidates walking up and down the street. They would come to these little coffee houses in these towns of 8,000 people. And there would be massive crowds. There would be like 12,000 people that would show up to this room that could only fit like 25 people, right? So this experience of like crowds following famous people is something we're very familiar with. And I remember trying to meet a couple of the candidates once, and I drive, I would drive up to the coffee house where they're meeting. And it was really funny. We had a Christian coffee house and, and on one side of the street. And then, like, the standard, traditional, it's been there forever, right? And so all the, all the Republicans went to the Christian coffee house, and all the Democrats went to the other one. It was the most insane kind of, like, we separated even on the block right there. And so I remember going to try to meet, I, I don't remember, I think it was Ben, uh, ben Carson. I was going to try to meet Ben Carson. He was at, I think he was at this coffee house. And the crowd was nuts. And so I just drove by. And I was like, eh, whatever. I'm not that interested in seeing Ben Carson. It's just a guy, right? It was fun because you're following the crowd. And you're like, this is, this is a great time to go do this, right? Anyway, Jesus is having some of the similar kind of effect on people. There's crowds forming around him. People are coming from, like, you know, the next neighboring little small town or, or outside of town to come see him and see what's going to happen. And Luke is actually including a lot of his literary tools he's used up to this point in telling this story. Jesus encounters a, a, a person that's considered a bad man to the rest of the culture. He's the chief tax collector. He's the worst of the worst. He has chosen to take a job serving Rome who's occupying us here in Palestine. This is crazy. This man is evil. And so Luke uses him, which he has done a lot of times, bringing in a character that kind of bristles people or makes people go, oh, I don't know if I like this guy, or puts him in a position to where he's hated. And the person is interesting to us as the reader because he's a wee little man. I think it's so fun that Luke says he was small in stature. Well, the readers for centuries after this have gone, take a note of that. We've written, we've written, We've written songs about this wee little man. So Luke is, is writing in a way to draw attention to the story. He uses this wonderful metaphor we find all through the Luke parables about being blind and receiving sight by saying he was too short. 
he couldn't actually see Jesus. The crowd was so big, and because he was a wee little man, he had to go find a way to see him. And then the sycamore tree, I mean, there's so much written about the sycamore tree and how important of a tree it was. And all. I mean, very specific, because everyone reading this would know exactly what this little man was, was accomplishing. I took a, kid, a youth ministry trip one time to Florida uh, to, do, to go to Life, Life Conference. And I had this adventurous teenager in my youth group who um, really, he was like a superhero. He could do things that nobody else could do, right? But he was like just a normal kid. But he goes, I'm going to climb that palm tree. Have you ever seen anybody climb a palm tree? Mentally put a palm tree in your head, right? It's like trying to climb a flagpole, except for it's got nails on it or shingles on it, facing away everywhere you grab it, like just cut your hand. This guy, he climbs a palm tree, right? And he does it, and he goes, boop, 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 like, just like a monkey up this tree, right? It's not an easy tree to climb because there was this other kid who copied everything that the superhero could do that went to try to climb the palm tree, and what does he do? He hugs a tree and does this all the way up the tree and rips the skin all over his body. Because climbing palm trees, you just don't do. But a sycamore tree, a sycamore tree you can climb. And it's easy for a wee little man to climb a tree. So having this image in your head, Luke is painting this crazy fun picture for the reader to engage. To actually what he does is Luke gives this summation of his entire gospel in Luke 19 verse 10. The entire purpose of this gospel is written right here. And that's why we're finishing the series on it. What is said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But who's seeking who in this story? Think about it. Put your, who is seeking who? See, Zacchaeus is working hard to get up this tree so that he can see what he can see, and he wants to see Jesus. But Jesus not only acknowledges Zacchaeus, but he moves himself through the crowd and does what? Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm, for I'm coming to your house today. Who's seeking who? Luke inserts this beautiful story to make us wrestle with the theology of salvation. Who saves who? Yikes. What it does is it gives us this poignant picture of the mission of Jesus Christ. The good news has arrived. The gospel is here. The king and his kingdom have arrived, and Jesus is seeking those who are seeking him. There is this desire and longing and want to from the broken, from the desperate, from the hurt, from the ones who want to receive grace like rain, to run after the one who can provide the grace. And and the story of Zacchaeus is this massive theological picture into the one who is seeking and the one who seeks. And where they meet right there in the middle. And, And what happens? You know the story. Zacchaeus repents. He gives all, half of his wealth to the poor, which is like multiple times more than he has to. He repents. He says, all of this is mine. I have have taken money, and I'm going to give it over and over and over again. And it's a complete transformation of who he is as a person because of the encounter with the kingdom. 
with the encounter with Jesus. This is a beautiful example of the power and effect of the gospel in the life of a person. We don't see the other conversations that take place between Jesus and Zacchaeus other than I'm coming to your house. And then Zacchaeus saying, I've given all that I, I'm giving this money away. I've cheated people. And then Jesus saying, for sure, this man is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus turned from dependence on his wiles and wealth to dependence on God's grace. He joyfully and openly repented of his past wrongdoings and adopted the way that Jesus taught him in an instant. He was the lost that Jesus came to seek and save. This is the new paradigm in which we live where there needs to be a radical reversal of our heart. A new value system. The upside-down kingdom where the least are the great and the great are the least. Where the sinner is elevated because of the Redeemer. This idea of the Son of Man, which I want to I get into just a little bit. I know we're going to have communion, so I'm going I'm to make it rapid. So what Jesus did right here when he says, surely this is a son of Abraham. This is a son of Abraham. Now, as a Jew... You believed, if you were a, an ethnic Jew, you believed you were saved just on that alone. Your heritage purchased salvation for you. Who you were as part of your family said that you were a part of the, the community of God. That you were in the family, so to speak, because of your heritage, because of your ethnicity. And sure, Zacchaeus was a Jew. He was a Jew. But what, what the Jews would look at when they would see the chief tax collector or they would find a, a, one of their people who would, who would forego their heritage, forego the people in their family, forego their ethnicity, and align with Rome for profit, they were ostracized. They were sent out of the family. They were said, no, you no longer are with us, which means you're no longer part of the family, which means you're no longer part of the kingdom, which means you're no longer part of eternity. You're not God's people anymore because you chose to side with the occupation of Rome. And you're gone. And when Jesus says, this is a son of Abraham, it means more than we could possibly imagine that because of what happened in the heart of Zacchaeus and the way he transformed, transformed his decision-making, his belief system, and all the different things that has led him up to this point because he completely repented and turned Jesus interrupts all that and says, this is a son of Abraham. This is a true member of my family. This, this is what I want. Shockwaves would go through the people. Also in here, Jesus uses his favorite phrase of himself, the son of man. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7 real quick, and I'm just going to give you some quick, like, hey, this is where this originates point from. There is a ton of fun studies out there on what the Son of Man is all about. And I, w I think it's a great, I mean, put this in your, in your caps, Sunday school teachers, adult equipment class people. Uh, the Son of Man study would be really interesting to work through. I can't find Daniel. There we go. Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to pick up at verse 6. And this is, this is fun, crazy stuff. But this would be, I'm telling you again, a Son of Man study would be really fun. Because you'll end up with end of the world study. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on his back, and the beast 
had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw the night visions. Behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It was a great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I mean, this is freaky stuff, right? I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were, were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes. Eyes like a, of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So if you're a little Jew, you know these passages because this is prophecy that's been told down to you. And you have this picture of like this crazy stuff. And you're like, when is this cool stuff going to happen, right? And then it says, as I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took a seed with his clothing, clothing with white as, was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire <laughs> issued and came out from before him and a thousand Thousands served him, and ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words of the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and the body destroyed, and given over to, the bur- and to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. But their li- lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then here's the big reveal. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting an everlasting dominion, and it shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man because this prophecy in Daniel is about Jesus, and he's referring to himself in that way. There's a couple other steps that happen through the New Testament where we talk about the Son of Man and the Son of Man. And it's a really fascinating thing. He refers to himself as the Son of Man more than any other phrase. The Son of Man. The Son of Man. I wanted to give you a taste of where that came from. Ah, one more thing. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. Okay. One more piece about about what, what Jesus is doing right here with saying, I'm the Son of Man and the Abraham piece. Verse, four, verse 13 of chapter 4 says this, For the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on what? grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring 
So Jesus is doing this really interesting thing where he's using language from the scriptures that the, the people around him would recognize. I am the son of man. The prophecy of the kingdom has arrived. And this is who I am. And I'm going to go before the ancient one. And that my kingdom will last forever. It will not be destroyed. And I'm inviting you to join me in that endeavor. And also, this is truly a son of Abraham. Meaning, the inheritance that I promise in my kingdom is given to those who have faith, not to those who just abide by the letter of the law or live in a way to where they judge according to the law. He's making this delineation that this is what my kingdom looks like. This is a summation, once again, of the entire gospel. I am the son of man, the kingdom has come, and I'm here to seek and save the lost. There's so much content in here. That it's hard to like use on a Sunday morning experience, right? Especially as a guy like me who doesn't necessarily want to deal with the content. But I just want to give you what I feel. But I think it's important for us to understand that there's a story that starts at Genesis. And that's, that's coming to a conclusion. And I, I, you could argue that the story that's happening all through the Old Testament is continuing to point to this, con, this point in Luke chapter 19 verse 10. And it, actually if you read verse 11, there's one more verse I think. We're all bouncing all over Scripture today. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Nope, I'm sorry. Because, yes, yes, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear, what? Immediately. And what Jesus is doing is he's penetrating the heart. All of these people thought because the kingdom he was here, it's going to be a physical kingdom. It's going to be this thing. Everybody's following Jesus because what they want to experience is they want to experience the occupation of Rome disappear. They want freedom not just in their spiritual lives, but in their real lives. And so they're arriving with Jesus because, he's, because of the way he's talked, and they know Daniel, and they know all of this stuff about the Son of Man coming, and this is what's going to happen, and his kingdom will not be taken, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. Let's partner with this guy because he's going to make us... Be free people, and we're going to live in prosperity, in life, and things are going to be great. Uh-oh. That's not the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. What king, the citizenship that Jesus is talking about is the complete transformation of the heart. The radical reversal of the heart. See, we're all Zacchaeus. We don't know why we want to seek Jesus at times. But we just do. Because we know that there's something there that we're missing. And I want us to really press into that idea. What is Zacchaeus doing? He is doing everything in his physical power to try to see what he can see. To see Jesus. To encounter the living Christ. To say, well, who is this person? And how do I interact with him? And what is he going to do? And then as soon as you encounter the person of Jesus Christ, what has to happen? Radical transformation. A complete difference in who you are. And that's super scary. That is incredibly bothersome. I like who I am a lot of the times. I would have a tough time giving over half of my wealth. I've got $12 and I don't know if I could give six of it away today. I don't think I want to do that. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. How do I partner with that? How do I live with that? 
How do I live in a way that does that very thing to where I seek and save the lost as his ambassador? See, that's the fun part about being in the kingdom is if you've aligned yourself and oriented your ways to the person of Jesus Christ and put your faith in him, you are now an ambassador. I mean, you represent him everywhere you go. See, a radical transformation of the heart actually permeates every piece of you. It doesn't just give you insurance to not go to hell. It's supposed to change the way that you talk. It's supposed to change the way that you think about people. It's supposed to change the way that you interact with others. It's supposed to change the way that you approach the Lord. Grace like rain. Rid, rid of myself so that I, I'm in unison with Jesus. I look like Jesus. I'm an ambassador for Christ. So that's why we say the phrase, what does this teach me about God? Well, first of all, what does this teach you about God? That God is pursuing us. That God is working to draw us into his kingdom. He is, his spirit is on the earth trying to draw us into his presence so that we can acknowledge the chaos and sin in our own lives and repent before him. So God is actively working. What does that teach me? He loves me. He loves me. God loves me because he's, he's pursuing me. Well, how does that help me to pursue Jesus? When you ask yourself that question, what do I, can I do this week? What can I do this week to pursue Jesus just a little bit more? What's a step that I can take towards Jesus Christ? Have you ever asked yourself that? Like, I think we live in this way to where we go, you know what, I'm going to go on a diet on Monday. It's a weekend. Let's load up on the carbs. Let's get some pizza. I'm, I'm tired of cooking. I'll hit it on Monday, right? I think we do that a little bit with our, I'll make a budget on Monday because I'm too tired today and Netflix is legit today. I mean, there's all these things that we do that we can delay. We continue to delay. But what if you were to say, I'm going to take one step towards Jesus today. What does that look like? What does that radically transform in your life? What sort of tree does that make you want to climb so that you can see what you can see? I want to interact with Jesus. I got to get up this tree so that I can interact with him. What's the tree? There is an obstacle in every single one of our lives that's, that's hindering our ability to encounter Jesus. I'm not saying it's always sin. Sometimes it's your kids. Sometimes it's your work. There's a thing in your life that's, in, that's an obstacle be, for you to be able to experience the person of Jesus Christ. And he wants you. And he wants to wreck your soul. So you go, man, that was a rough day. I just gave away my last six bucks. He wants that. Because when you radically transform your life because you love him, you couldn't care less about all the other stuff. How does this help me pursue Jesus? 